Good morning. Uh, it is a joy to be here with you and share the Word of God with you. It really is a joy every Sunday for me to come here, and um, I think it's, uh, it's definitely the pinnacle of the week. It's something that I look forward to every, every uh, week to come and worship with the saints. There's something truly amazing and even miraculous about coming together as servants of God, as children of God, and worshiping together in one voice. Just hearing the, the kids really yell out that song um, uh, when we were singing just uh, was just awesome as well. And what a joy it is for us to grow together in Christ and have God continue to mold us and shape us to be more like Him. I think there's a true, deep, profound joy that comes up from the soul, like from the depths of our soul. We know God truly, and we understand that God knows us, and He calls us to Himself. So praise God for this time where we can worship God together. Uh, let's pray before we begin. Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts being free from worldly things may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We'll do the entire chapter, which is 44 verses, but at this point we'll read uh, 13, the first 13 verses. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. If you have a pew Bible, you can also find it in front of you. Uh, you can find this passage on page 231. And when you have found it, please rise in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. 
And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man uh, of them uh, strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This chapter and the previous one are connected. So if you heard last week's message, there will be a connection and a flow, especially in the narrative portion, and that we are supposed to see certain things. So certain things and items and subjects are, are popping up here, and it goes along. And it's meant to be even contrasted with the themes of the previous chapter. The hinge verse here is in verse 1, where we see the death of Samuel. With the death of Samuel, we are reminded that it was Saul in the previous chapter that finally publicly acknowledged David's anointing as future king of Israel, since it was Samuel that did that anointing. And also with the passing of Samuel, Israel is now left in a precarious place with a corrupt king on one side and a new and up-and-coming king, but not yet fully established king on the other. David also looks like he went to pay his respects and then goes down afterward to the wilderness of Paran. Now, the fact that David has to still go from wilderness to wilderness gives us some insight into probably what David was going through or even how he felt after Saul's confession. Even though Saul would say, I know you're eventually going to be king, then why does David still go from wilderness to wilderness or desert to desert? Did David trust Saul to keep his word that he would do David no harm? And I don't think so. But being a man on the run is not easy. And starting from the latter portion of verse 1 and verse 2, we are introduced to some new characters in David's life. So I have four points for you this morning. And they are the foolish, the wise, the instruction, and the grace. The foolish the wise, the instruction, and the grace. The foolish. We are quickly introduced to two new characters, but in different ways. First, there is a man, okay? And he lives in Mayon, and he works at Carmel. He was very rich, and he was most definitely a prominent man in society. He had 3,000 sheep, it says, and 1,000 goats. And verse 2 continues on with sharing that he was currently shearing all those sheep in Carmel. And I'm sure maybe some of us can relate to this. Those of us who live in Jersey, perhaps, work many miles east to New York City or maybe even some miles south of North Bergen. And so he was a commuter. But there's something that may seem off. Did you catch it as we read it? Imagine you were introduced. We introduced you. Here you are, a man or a woman, 
someone very well off, rich, maybe by even some standards. You live in New Jersey and you work in New York City and you are currently at the, at the city in your office. Now, after I say all of that, that's when I tell you after all of that, that this is your name. I give you all of this before and I say that your name is this. And that's what the scriptures do here. They give us all this information, and then they say his name is Nabal. Now here is Nabal, a man who is preceded by his possessions in his introduction. And this will prove to be a very, very significant portion of the story. The word for Nabal is from the Hebrew word Nabal. Nabal means fool. Now here are some examples in the Bible where Nabal is used. In Psalm 53, 1, it says, The fool, so that's Nabal, Nabal, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Nabal there is translated as fool. Here's one more. In Isaiah chapter 32, 6, for the Nabal speaks folly, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Now, if you listen to Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6, you might even wonder if this is a callback from Isaiah to this point in history, to this point in David's life, because it seems oddly familiar. So who is Nabal? Someone we see that not only after being told of his riches, we are told his name, his name is a fool, and being a fool in the Bible isn't just a reference to your IQ or intelligence. To be a fool is to be an utter disaster socially, morally, and spiritually. This dude is a dud. But almost in the same breath, when Nabal's name is given, Abigail is introduced. She was Nabal's wife, and she was discerning and beautiful. This word beautiful is also described for people like Rachel in the Bible. Truly beautiful women of the Bible were described with this adjective, and this is what was used for Abigail. But in contrast, it says Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. Contrast Nabal, which means fool, and Abigail, which literally translated from the Hebrew means a father's joy. So when you have a daughter who is absolutely precious, you can name her Abigail, which means a father's joy. And that's what Abigail means. And so now you may be thinking, even from verse 2 and verse 3, the writer here is being very, very distinctly, maybe even you might think, why is he being so mean to Nabal? But is he? Is he being mean and we'll see, it's not just a writer who thinks so, but every other person that Nabal comes into contact with, they validate these certain claims about his character. You see, David and his men are in a bind. He is in the wilderness, 
and in the Hebrew wilderness and desert are the same word. So he could be in the desert, he could be in the wilderness. It just means barren land. You can't get food. It's not like they're just corn cropping up and you can pick the seeds. That's not how it works. So he's in the wilderness, he's in a barren land, he's in the desert, and he needs food. Now it so happens there's a rich man in that same area who had contact with David. David and his men apparently protected Nabal's shepherds while they were with them. So the shepherds needed help and protection, and David gave it to them. And they asked from the shepherds nothing at the time. Now, at this juncture, David and his men need help. So he sends his emissaries and asks for some food that they would have plenty for it. He knew that he would, they would have plenty for it because it was a feast day, as it says. We see Nabal actually throw himself a party after the scene. So it was, in fact, a feast day of sorts. So here are the details. David and his men helped Nabal's shepherds, thereby helping him keep his possessions in his time of need. Now when David is in need, he comes for some food. Not a lot. What he is saying is, Whatever you have to spare, could, could we get some food? And David ends the message by calling his men Nabal's servants. And he calls himself, David calls himself in reference in this message, a son of Nabal. This was a humble message from the anointed king of Israel. I say this because there are some, if you would just initially just outright read this, you might think, wait, is uh, David doing some kind of protection racket here? Um, is he some kind of mobster who's like, oh, you'll give me some money and I'll quote unquote protect your business. But I think that's unfair then of David to ask anything of Nabal if that was the case. But I think that kind of reading is a shallow reading of the text when you consider the nuances and tone of the message that David sent. And in verse 9, David's men say all these things back to David, but then it said, no, I'm sorry, David's men say all these things to Nabal that David told his men to tell Nabal, and then it says in verse 9 that they waited. Now this is significant. They waited. Why is it significant? So could you imagine, now we have established that they're in the wilderness, they're in the desert, they're in a barren land. Could you imagine the heat of day or the freezing cold of night in the desert wilderness? And when Nabal gets this message, what does he do? He makes them wait, wait outside. And then in verse 10, Nabal finally answers, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. So it's not that Nabal didn't know who David was or didn't remember. He knew at least he was the son of Jesse. That wasn't in the address that the men gave Nabal. But what he is saying to David in his response is that, David, you're a nobody. You're this weak guy who needs to come for crumbs that fall from my table. Who do you think you are? Now, there are tons of nobodies that think there's someone these days. That means that there are many servants breaking away from their masters. And in the Hebrew, slave and servant are interchangeable. And so 
This is what he calls David, an Ebed. And Ebed also is translated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. That's the word, Ebed. So that's the word that Nabal calls David. There are many slaves breaking away from their masters. So looking now at the tone and the nuances, the context of David's message versus the tone, the nuances, and context of Nabal's response, we see that it is anything but respectful. It actually seems downright nasty. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 13, it says this, If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Now at first glance, uh, one, might thaw, one might have thought that Nabal was just ignoring or dismissing David. He thought that he could get a free lunch. First of all, we should all know that there is no such thing as a free lunch. I knew that when I first came in to train as a pastor, I knew that this would be a church that I could serve because there was an elder who's sitting here, which I won't name. I'll just look in his general direction. But he gave this seminar, and this seminar was titled, There's No Such Thing as a Free Lunch. And I said, this is the church that I want to stay at. Nowadays, if an elder gave that seminar or some kind of uh, teaching, people might be like, aren't you being a little too political? And so a lot of folks say that these days. Aren't you being a little too political? And... I, I wonder what people actually mean by that statement. What do you mean by saying that something is too political? Do you mean what it actually means, which is it's related to political parties and politicians? Because then there's nothing really wrong with that. In a sense, talking about any president or any leader is political then. But I think what people mean when they say something is quote-unquote too political is that the topic that was brought up is they don't agree with or they don't come to the same conclusions or they just don't want to think about these modern, current, hot topics. Then the statement that something is too political is just a cop-out. I get that if someone only talks about personalities in the political government, we can see that there are dangers and there are warnings. But if you are talking about ideas, if you are talking about the morality of certain subjects, of things that are happening, especially if they are clearly going against God's laws, then your idea of politics, that you think this is too political, then your idea of politics is infantile. We even have a saying that if someone helps you in your time of need, we're indebted to them. We're indebted to them. There is some kind of debt. I was joking around with the staff this past week that I wanted to name this, um, the sermon, Pay Your Debts, Pay Your Debts. There's no such thing as a free lunch. But then all this stuff happened, so it might be a little political. People might not understand, oh, is this just what he wants to talk about? Literally, this is about paying your debts. Uh, there have been um, a lot of talk surrounding this idea that student loans might be forgiven. This idea that student loans might be forgiven, people have responded to. This is an idea. And so people will talk about 
the economic realities of it. They will talk about the morality of it. They will talk about what it really does. And that kind of talk and that kind of discussion is very important for our young people to have. Not just to say this is political and then just be like, well, you know, free money. There's no such thing. Someone is paying that. The government doesn't have any money. The government takes money from people and then distributes it. So your idea that you have a, uh, a loan or a debt that is quote unquote forgiven, it's a misnomer. It really doesn't happen. Someone is going to pay that. And the way it's being paid is what is in discussion, is what's being debated. And I really do like it. And this is a lot of the stuff that we do in our podcast, even though we're taking a month off, uh, this week would have definitely been something to that effect. But God's people, we must understand that when we take on a debt, we have to pay it. And when we are unable to pay it, we are truly in a terrible bind. If we are unable to pay our debts, we are people truly in, an unter- uh, in a terrible bind. The Bible even says, don't put yourself in debt. Don't do that. That's a terrible thing. And yet, how many of us can say we are free from any kind of debt, whether it is fiscal debt or some kind of other debt where we owe somebody some kind of favor? And so this is not, let's say, something political. This is something wisdom-oriented. This is something that needs discernment. And in fact, when we talk about debt, as we see here, it's about morality. There is a morality that happens or that we must understand that surrounds this kind of debt or this indebtedness. In verse 11, Nabal heaps on more insult then. So David is being really nice. He could say, hey man, I saved you your shepherds, your sheep, you owe me. You are indebted to me. You cried out for help. I became like a wall for you. And yet, he doesn't do that. He goes really humbly. But in verse 11, Nabal heaps on more insult by saying, after he says, who's David? Who's this son of Jesse? There are a lot of slaves trying to, there there are a lot of these nobodies trying to make a name for themselves is in effect what he's saying. But in verse 11, he heaps on more insult by saying, shall I take my bread, my water, and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. Now there's a very interesting addition to the introduction of Nabal. In the earlier verses, we see that Nabal was a Calebite. Now, Caleb was given a special portion of land when they finally went into the land of Israel, where they are now. And Caleb picked this land, which was very fruitful, which was wonderful. It would make someone like a descendant of Caleb rich. However, there's no mention of him being thankful. There's only mentions of him saying, this is my, my, my. To these nobodies, mine, I'm Nabal. Who are you again, is what he is saying. There is no such thing as a free lunch. However, when David and his men protected Nabal's shepherds from harm, what they were doing is they were using their own bodies as shields. I would imagine people were harmed. They were injured and maybe even killed. 
And I know we live in a modern age where we expect zero casualties in every and any skirmish that happens. That is unrealistic, and you are living in la-la land if you think so. Blood was spilt, and when David would ask for a mere meal, he was disrespected and spit on metaphorically. So when the news got back to David about how Nabal responded, David commands his men to strap on their swords. Sword is mentioned three times in verse 13, because now there will be blood for blood. The debtor is coming to collect. Here is the next section, the wise. There are actually two in this section. Before, before we get to that, we all know what will happen if you have 400 men with swords coming after you. But in verse 22, we see exactly what David was planning on doing. Fortunately for this fool, he had at least two wiser people under him. And the first one was a servant. And he would tell Abigail this in verses 14 to 17. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the field as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. The servant assesses the situation correctly. He knows exactly what's at stake, who's who. There is this saying that if you really want to be discerning, you need to know thyself. You need to know yourself. And you need to know what kind of situation you are really in. And that's the difference between a wise person and an unwise person. An unwise person is still living in La La Land. They have unrealistic expectations. They think everything should be, let's say, free. Everything should be free. I deserve this. I deserve that. But here is a man who is discerning, who really understands the situation that he is in. And he tells Abigail because he also knows who else is discerning. So the wise also knows who else is wise. And now what Abigail does in hearing this, she hurries, takes bread, wine, sheep, grain, raisins, figs, and then she takes off. She doesn't tell Nabal because she obviously believed the servant's assessment of Nabal was correct. And when she gets to David, here are her opening words. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Abigail, after doing all this, assumes the guilt on Nabal's behalf. Now Abigail is wise because she not only was able to discern the situation, she was able to move quickly and correctly. She knew that the time that she had was short, so she was able to move according to what was given and allotted to her. And then she assumes the guilt on behalf of Nabal. Why? Why? Because she didn't know anything about Nabal's response. So does it stand, so she does it to stand in the gap between the men of her house and David who has come to kill all of them. She flips what Nabal did when he was insolent toward David 
because to continue on would have been to die because of folly, what a fool stirred up for no reason. Why would it be that you are surprised that, say, when a bear wakes up from hibernation and eats the first thing that he sees, even if that first thing is you? Only a fool would be surprised. But Nabal's wife was resourceful, smart, wise. Immediately after her introduction, she puts out an oath. In verse 26, this is what she says. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So Abigail knew that Nabal would not last long because of his foolish ways. But she realizes and says to David that it was God who restrained him from bloodshed and the guilt that comes with that bloodshed. David was about to turn Carmel into Nob, the city where Saul slaughtered all those priests. Isn't it truly a sign? Instead of that rejected king who would sully the crown and all that it represented, Yahweh would be here upholding his chosen one. Abigail sees that by not doing what David is setting out to do. See, David was setting out to be his own savior, to be his own salvation. God is protecting. By not letting David do that, God is protecting David's heart. God is protecting his conscience. Abigail's speech to David is that of informed knowledge. She knew who God was and what God's promises were for David. She was able to remind David of them and thereby ask for forgiveness from him. So Abigail's household was on the brink of, of extinction because of folly. But with wisdom, she saves it. In a confusing and deceitful world, do you have wisdom? Do you have discernment? Do you sense and understand the urgency in acquiring it and the significance of its importance? Or are you given into emotional pulls and sways? Can you still pray for your enemies? Can you love your neighbor? Do you know what righteousness is? Do you know what justice truly is? A few years ago, um, many years ago actually, there's, um, there's this devotional that they would give out. It's called The Daily Bread. I don't know if a lot of you are familiar with it, but it's a devotional booklet. And in this, they would have sometimes, they would have stories. But there was a philosophy professor who used to teach his students, and beginning each term, he would say, do you believe we can show that there are no absolute values such as justice? This is how he would start his philosophy class. Do you believe we can show that there are uh, do you believe that we can show that there are absolute values such as justice? And his students would respond because they were free thinkers. They were people that were educated. They all would say, no, no, there are no absolute values such as justice. Everything is relative. That's the consensus. That's how the class started. There are no principle that applies, there are no principles that apply to all times and places. And then, before the end of the semester, one class session he would use, and he would a lot for debating this issue. And at the end, he would remark this, and this is, this is what he would say, regardless of what you think, 
I want you to know that absolute values can be demonstrated. And if you don't accept what I say, I'll flunk you. So this is a philosophy course where he goes, are there such absolute values like justice? Everybody would be like, no, everything is relative. And then after a session, you would say, regardless of what you think, there are absolute values. And if you don't believe in absolute values, I'll flunk you. And then it's noted that one angry student shot up out of his chair, made for the door, and as he went out, he would scream out, that's not fair. That proved his point. If you were following along, that proved his point. That's not fair is an absolute statement. It's not relative. It's absolute. He's saying what he did is absolutely not fair. See, we believe everything is relative except when it comes to our own emotions and our feelings. It's not fair should really be a cry for injustice. But it's a cry we tend to hear when things do not go our way. When things don't go our way, then absolutes come into play. Otherwise, otherwise, how dare you impose your absolutes on me? You see, wisdom helps us discern from what is truly absolute and what is absolutely evil. The third point is the instruction. The instruction. Two people were given lessons here, actually. Not just one. Two people were given lessons. But one listened and the other did not. The contrast here is between David and Nabal. I'm going to read Nabal's portion first. In verse 36 it says, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Now this kind of superlative for a feast meant something like he was really living it up almost like an orgy. So commentators would say he was like literally having an orgiastic feast here. And Nabal's heart, and I'm going to continue on, Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. The point is, Nabal was actually given teaching and instruction. He was given that. What did he do after he got the teaching and instruction? He did nothing. In fact, the text says that his heart died within him. He was like a rock. Nothing. He just shut off. And ten days later, God actually struck him, and he died. There are those who would be shown instruction. This is the point. But they will do nothing. They will do nothing after they hear instruction, just like Nabal the fool. What happens when you hear instruction and you don't do anything is your heart dies within you, and the same instruction will never move you again. Meaning, if you listen to instruction the first time and nothing changes, then your heart has not been moved, then you are like a rock. You're not going to move... The same instruction won't move you. If you hear something that is wise and you don't change your ways, you will die is the point. There are those who are mistaken and think that, oh, you know, this time I won't listen, but next time I will. What makes you think that next time you will when the instruction is exactly the same? If you hear righteous, good instruction today, you must move today. If you hear the good news today, you must respond today. 
not tomorrow, not next year, not when you retire, not when you're about to die, but today. Otherwise, we see that we are living exactly like Nabal. In contrast, this is David who responds. He responds in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. David, in response, or in contrast to Nabal, he listens to this instruction, and he responds. And he responds in a way that we have to also see and take note of. When you get instruction, and you truly understand this is good instruction, this is godly instruction, this is righteous instruction, what happens in the heart? How do I know that you have received instruction? It's shown here. You respond with praise. You respond with praise to God. God who had kept you from sin. God who had been truly your Savior. When you tried to save yourself, it wouldn't work. And you realizing this, understanding that it is only God who can save, then you have this heart of praise. You have a heart of worship. There is this response that is joyful and God-glorifying. And this is why I started this sermon by saying I love gathering with the saints. It's because this is the place where people who understand that God has forgiven us, who understand that God has given us instruction, and who has broken down our hearts so that we are malleable, not like hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh, like it says in Jeremiah, so that we can now worship God, how joyful it is to worship God with the saints. And so he blesses God, he worships God, and he also appreciates the person that brought him instruction. And this is the final point. And the final point is the grace. Sometimes the grace given is to stop us from doing something that would have done great harm, that would have dealt great harm to ourselves or others. So God sends Abigail's or someone like that male servant to warn us. And I want to kind of intermingle this with the previous point because a lot of people just think grace is just something that's given. That's an add-on. You know, God's grace, because of God's grace, I have this, I have that, I have a car, I have a house, I have a family, I have kids, I have all these wonderful things, I have a job, you know, this kind of thing. But grace can also be a restraining grace where God keeps us from damaging ourselves and damaging others. That also should be worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. Praise God who restrained us from not becoming even deeper sinners, but turned us around while we were headed toward that direction. He would turn us around and make us repentant so that now we are no longer headed to death, headed to a place of stone, headed to a place where our hearts are not moved at all, but now we are turned around so that we are malleable. We are people that can receive instruction, people that can mature in righteousness, in holiness, in true justice. Praise God for that. 
And so when we receive unrestraining grace, or restraining grace, excuse me, it should lead us to thankful worship. Praise God for that. I praise God that we hadn't gone deeper into a place where we couldn't get out of muck and mire that would have entangled us, that would have permanently damaged us, perhaps. But God, by His saving grace, by His restraining grace, has truly saved us. Let's remember those times. Let's remember those times just as David was reminded here of how he was restrained. But let's take time to remember also the times in our lives where God restrained us. And perhaps it was to go into a deeper place of sin, a deeper place of a hardened heart, a deeper place of bitterness, a deeper place where we might not have come out from. But because of His gracious mercy to us, here we are, worshiping God with the saints. Praise be to God. Let's worship Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You so much not that we have deserved it, but because of your incredible love for us. You called us to be your children. You saved us from your wrath. And you turned us, turned us around from what would have entangled, dismantled, broken us, put us deeper into places of bitterness, envy, and sin. Oh God, we pray that we would continue to be repentant, that we would continue to be people that are instructable. And as we remember from last week, people with humble hearts. So God, continue to do your work within our lives. Make us more like you. Make joy truly erupt from the depths of our souls. And may we lift it up to your praise and honor and glory forever. Let's take this time to pray. And uh, like I said before, maybe remember the times God has restrained you. And praise God for that. Give Him thanks. Give Him glory. Our God is so good, isn't He? He is so gracious to His children. And pray that we will continue on in a path of humility, just as David was in this point, to listen, to be instructed, and to change. Let's pray.